If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please open it up to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. If you have been with us for any length of time, or if you've been attending our evening services, you should know that we've been going through a sermon series, a secondary sermon series, through the book of Judges. Um, Last week, Eugene brought us the word from Judges 12, um, and tonight I am going to be bringing the word to you guys from Judges 13. Uh, If you do not have a Bible that you can call your own, you should find one in the seat back in front of you. Please take that and please keep that. Uh, We would love for you to have a copy of God's word that you can read and study on your own time. Uh, I believe in the Pew Bible, I think the page is 213 if you're still looking for it. So Judges 13. 3,237. There are 3,237 names of people used throughout the entire Bible. 3,237. Now, is this actually accurate? I have no idea. Um, But I did not spend my first 10 hours of sermon prep counting each name. Uh, But apparently somebody else has. So a simple Google search came up with multiple sources that said that there were 3,237 names or people in the Bible. Uh, I did not ask Jeeves, but maybe he would come up with something different. But it seemed like that was a common consensus. Um, So whether or not this number is correct, I think it's clear to say that the Bible is saturated with different people and different names. But of those 3,237 people in the Bible, there is a shocking few number of birth stories. There's a shocking few number of stories about how people are born. Sure, we can point to Isaac and Esau and Jacob and Moses and Samuel and John the Baptist and even Adam and, of course, Jesus. But as you keep going, you start to run short on names, There are 3,237 people in the biblical story, and a shocking few of them have descriptions of their birth. Even major historical figures like Noah and Abraham and David are missing birth narratives. When you see something out of the ordinary in the Bible, or when you see something that's not the norm, it should prompt you to go, I wonder why that's there. I wonder why the Holy Spirit led the biblical author to include this story in this book of the Bible. Why did God include this in his inspired work? Everybody here has a birth story. Ask any mom, and I guarantee you that she will have a story about how she gave birth. But why was this one story included in the Bible? And so we come to Judges 13, and we stumble across a birth story for Samson. Samson? Really? Sure, okay, he was big and strong. Okay, he was a judge of Israel, and he helped deliver Israel from the Philistines. He kind of has a fun story to tell, as long as you tell the PG version of it. But Samson? So let's consider together this unusual story in the Bible. And I hope that today we, we will see God's faithfulness to pursue a crooked people. So look with me in your Bible as we read from the 13th chapter of Judges in its entirety. Judges chapter 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. 
Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child should be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God heard the voice of Manoah, and the angel of the Lord came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the wine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when the words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah, his wife, and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshdale. Let's pray this morning. Father, I pray that your word would go forth. I pray that you would convict us of sin. I pray that you would encourage our hearts. And I pray that you would draw us closer to the Savior. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. This is our prayer this morning. And we lift all these things up in Jesus' name. Amen. So our time this morning is going to be built around three major points. Three major points. The first one is a crooked people. The second point is going to be faith in the midst of a crooked people. And our third is going to be a deliverer for a crooked people. So, Point one, a crooked people. So if you're familiar with the book of Judges at all, you're probably familiar with the general cycle of the book. 
the author doesn't really try to hide the general trend that we see throughout the entire book of Judges. He even uses the same vocabulary throughout the entire book. First, Israel turns away from God, and they serve other gods. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Second, God gives his people into the hands of a foreign country. The Lord gave them into the hand of fill-in-the-blank. Third, God's people cry out for deliverance, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Fourth, God raises up a judge for his people and delivers his people. And then fifth, Israel turns their face away from God again, and the cycle continues. Not only does Israel continue to fall into sin and rebellion against God, but the nation itself slowly spirals down as the people and judges appointed by God grow more and more wicked. Showing that the Israelites have become little different than the pagan nations that they were told by God to be separate from. And showing that everybody, everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. It is a tragic story showcasing the rebellion and hatred that God's people have for him, despite his constant pity and love toward him. At least five times prior to our passage this morning, we see the people turning away from God, being sold into slavery, crying out to God for deliverance, being delivered in a miraculous way, only to turn away from God again. And now we come to the last judge in the book of Judges and perhaps the the most famous judge, Samson. And just like every other judge, we see a similar pattern continue. Look with me at verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, if you keep on from there, it goes right into the birth story, and it proceeds to God raising up a deliverer for Israel. Now, like we talked about with the birth story, it's important to notice when something out of the ordinary is in the Bible. But it is also important to notice when something is missing from the Bible. Did you see it? Israel sins against God. Israel is taken over by the Philistine, and God gives Israel a deliverer. What is missing in our cycle from this story? Well, Israel never cries out to God. Israel never turns away from their sin. Israel never pleads to God for help from their oppressors. And it's not like God didn't give them the opportunity. Israel was in the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. This was the longest occupation of Israel by a foreign country in the whole book of Judges. Before Othniel, it was eight years. Before Ehud, 18 years. Before Deborah, 20 years. Before Gideon, seven years. Before Jephthah, 18 years. And before Samson, 40 years. Twice as much as the next longest. The number 40 often symbolizes a period of testing, trial, or probation in the Bible. When Noah built his ark, the rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. Israel spent 40 years wandering in the desert. Moses was sent on Mount Sinai for 40 days before getting the Ten Commandments. Jesus spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness before his earthly ministry. 40 days spanned before Jesus appeared to his disciples and to his ascension. So Israel is in the hand of the Philistines for 40 years here. It seems like there's some period of testing or probation, and they failed. 
And don't forget, 40 years is a long time. If you're 40 here this morning, I'm sorry, please forgive me, but 40 years is a long time. In 40 years, an entire generation can rise up and have kids, and maybe even grandkids. 40 years ago, E.T. came out in theaters. 40 years ago, Ronald Reagan was president of the United States. 40 years ago, we still did not know how Luke Skywalker beat Darth Vader. 40 years ago, our practices and our beliefs as a culture looked incredibly different than they do now. In 40 years, an entire culture can change. And when you spend 40 years with somebody, you can begin to look a lot like them. And so now, 40 years have passed, and it seems probable that Israel has become used to life under the Philistines. It appears that Israel has become content with life under Philistinian rule, so much so that they don't see their need to cry out to God. Consider that. The people of God, Yahweh's set-apart country, the people to whom the blessing of Abraham was promised, the people who were drawn out of Egypt, the people who were given the law of God, the people who were to be unstained from the rest of the world and sanctify themselves against the pagan countries around them, have become content under occupation from the, the Philistines. At some point between the arrival of the Philistine army and 40 years of occupancy, God's set-apart people began to think, you know, this isn't so bad. I kind of like the way that the Philistines are doing life. Their entertainment appeals to me. They're not as bad as I thought that they were. Maybe they don't have it all wrong. Maybe we don't need God. And their hearts are drawn so far away from God that they don't even realize that they need a Savior. Why appeal to God when you can have everything that you want in this world? Why appeal to God when you can appease your lust without the painful sting of conscience? Why appeal to God when you can continue to live with the Philistines, where you can watch what you want, you can eat what you want, you can listen to what you want, you can be who you want to be? And the downward spiral of Israel's apostasy has brought them so low that you cannot even tell them apart from the Philistines. The people of God look just like the world around them, and they don't even think that they need to be saved. People of God, church, brothers and sisters, children to the almighty God of Israel, you are a holy priesthood. You are a set-apart nation. You are a people set aside for his own possession. Is your life set apart and unstained from the world around you? Or have you grown content to live as a part of the crooked people before you today? 1 Peter 1, 14-16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
1 John 2, 15 through 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world around us is crying out for our souls. It longs for us to transfer our worship from the one and only God to the empty cisterns that it offers to us. But we are called to be a people set apart to the holy God. And my question for you this morning is, is your life set apart? And consider all aspects of life. Does the way that you interact with your children show a life set apart to a holy God? Are you kind and patient and nurturing? Do you discipline out of love and not anger like your heavenly Father does? Or are you harsh and impatient and quick to fly off the handle with them? Does the way that you treat your spouse show a life set apart for a holy God? Are you patient and gentle, putting her needs before your own? Or are you quick to criticize, easily annoyed, and lusting after others? Does the way that you work show a life set apart for a holy God, doing your work with excellence, serving your coworkers selflessly, not complaining about the work that you have to do, or do you waste time scanning Instagram and complaining about your boss? How about the shows that you watch? How about the music that you listen to? How about the way that you spend your money? Many people ask, how far can I go without being in sin? Rather than asking, how can I glorify a holy God with this aspect in my life? So many people ask, how far is too far? Instead of asking, how can I glorify and honor God? The Lord requires no less from you and me than all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our might. We are a people called to live holy lives in the midst of a watching world that hates our Father. And yet some who claim the name of Christ don't look any different than the world around them. When you turn on the TV to watch a show, or you tune into a station on the radio, or you look at the news, or you interact with a coworker, is there a feeling inside of you that screams out, this is not my home. I do not belong here. My citizenship is not of this world, but I long to be where my soul was made to find its fullness in the presence of my Father. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Or do you feel like you fit in? Israel was to be a set-apart people. We are to be a set-apart people. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not going to sit here and give you a list of do's and don'ts. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and be like, the only movies that you can watch are Facing the Giants and Courageous and Fireproof. And when you're in your car, Caleb better be playing. <laughs> but I challenge you to consider in what ways are you seeking to conform your life to the life of Jesus? In what ways are you looking to honor God with every aspect of your life? And in what ways are you allowing the culture to just shape your views of what is right and wrong? In what ways are you intentionally fighting against the evils of the world? And in what ways are you passively just letting the world's philosophy creep into your life? It's a question that we need to ask ourselves often because it's so easy for our lives to just mold into the culture around us. And if left unchecked, that's exactly what we will do. 
And brothers and sisters, if you are hearing this and you feel convicted of sin, and if you feel like I'm just twisting a knife into your side, please remember that the Lord Jesus forgives sin. And even though we turn from him, even though we are drawn to wicked things, even though we still have a sinful heart, the Lord Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, and he will forgive you if you confess your sin to him. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Clothe yourself with humility and run to him for cleansing, and you will find rest for your souls. So point one was a crooked people. Point two, faith in the midst of a crooked people. Faith in the midst of a crooked people. So notice with me two important people in this story and the faith that they have. We're going to start with Manoah. So now many people read Manoah's story, and they conclude that Manoah is not a very reputable character. Many people think that he should have done things differently in several areas. Instead of asking to hear the word of the man of God himself, he should have been content to hear what his wife had told him. Instead of asking to hear more about what he was to do with the child, he should have understood that God told them everything that they needed to know. Instead of being scared that they would die after seeing the angel of the Lord, he should have had faith that God would not have chosen to show them these things if he meant for them to perish. Many people look at Manoah and they conclude he should have had greater faith. And I'll admit, Manoah could have had more faith in this story. He could have trusted God better. But I challenge you to change your perspective of Manoah. Consider the culture that he was a part of here. He lived in a country that was devoted to the worship of false gods. And all around him was a flood of debauchery and wickedness. And even the people who were supposed to be set apart for God looked exactly like the world around them. Even though the whole world around him is turning against God, Manoah remains a man of faith. Manoah prays to God, asking that he may also see the angel who spoke to his wife in verse 8. A pagan wouldn't pray to God. Much of Israel in this day would not pray to God. But he brings his request to his God. Manoah also believes the word spoken by the angel of the Lord. He trusted in what the angel of the Lord has said in verse 12, that somehow a miracle would occur that they would bear a son after years of barrenness. Even though all signs pointed to the fact that this would not be the case, Manoah still had faith. Manoah offers up a sacrifice to the Lord in verse 19, and the Lord accepts his offering in verse 23. Despite his shortcomings, despite his failures, despite his lack of faith, despite areas where he could grow, Manoah proves that he is a man of God in the midst of a crooked people. And that is a powerful testimony. That is something that God finds favorable. That is a man whom God would send his deliverer through. When all around him is striving to tear him away from his God, Manoah continues to find faith in his creator. Now, could God have rebuked him for some of the things that he does? Probably. Probably. But notice that at no point does God actually do this. Rather, he is patient with his lack of faith. He agrees to send the angel again. He answers his questions. He accepts his sacrifice. 
and he ultimately sends his deliverer through his once barren wife. Brothers and sisters, is your faith weak this morning? Do you have questions about God that plague your thoughts? Do you look at the trials and tribulations before you and ask, how could God be in the midst of this? Do you continue to struggle with sin time after time after time, but you keep confessing it to God and confessing it to others and strive to put it to death? Do you wonder if you can walk another day along the straight and narrow on the way to the celestial city? And yet, in the midst of it all, do you continue to cling to the cross of Christ? Do you continue to pray to your Father? Do you continue to go to his word, seeking his faith? Do you continue to confess sin to God and others? And do you continue to echo with the Apostle Peter, to whom shall I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. When I fear my faith will fail, when the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast, and he will hold you fast. Brother or sister, weak in the faith this morning, the Lord is patient with you. The Lord sees you. He is with you, and he will hold you fast. Just keep going back to him, and keep going back to him, and keep going back to him, because after all, he is the only one who has the words of eternal life. But notice our second person, Manoah's wife. Manoah's wife. We have not talked enough this morning about Manoah's wife. Here is a woman who is set apart in her faith. Here is a woman who is in the same crooked people that her husband is in. She has just as few children as her husband has. She would be left a childless widow if anything were to happen to Manoah. And yet her faith is striking. The angel comes and tells her remarkable news, unbelievable news. Despite your years of barrenness, you will have a son. And that son will deliver Israel from the Philistines. And she believes it immediately. Not only that, but she shares that good news with her husband as well. She doesn't need to ask any more questions of her God. But she trusts him fully. When she sees the angel of the Lord for who he actually is, she does not cower in fear. But rather, she encourages those around her, trusting that she knows the character of her God, that he would not toy with them in such a way. She encourages the faint-hearted around her. This is a person whose faith is striking. This is a person who is a gift to her family. This is a person who is a gift to her country. This is a person who God will use to bring forth his deliverer. Strong faith in the life of a believer is a gift to the church. Strong faith in the life of a believer is a gift to the church. You may not be the best speaker. You may not be the best teacher. You may not have the spiritual gifts that everybody longs for in this world. But if your faith is strong, what an encouragement that is to the people of God. If when you're struggling through a trial, but you continue to show up to church each Sunday morning, and you sing joyfully and zeal, and you seek to encourage others around you, you are a blessing to the people around you. 
when your children are being insubordinate and it seems like nothing that you say is getting through, but you continue to cry out to God and you pray for their souls and you faithfully discipline them in the way that they, they should go, you are a blessing to the people around you. When you read something in your Bible reading and you text it out to somebody and how it spoke to you, you are a blessing to the people around you. Your resolve to trust God in the midst of suffering may encourage another church member to follow God just a little bit more. Your resolve to trust God in the midst of suffering may encourage another church member to follow God a little bit more. If God is continuing to keep her in the midst of what she is going through, surely he can keep me as well if I were to ever fall into a well of despair. Your faith and your trust in God is a blessing to the church. And notice also, we never hear the name of a Noah's wife. She is left anonymous throughout the entire story, but I'd be willing to bet that she will be closer to the throne of grace on that final day than I'm going to be. Her glory and her reward for her faith is not in this world, but it's in the age to come. And God will surely bless her and reward her. If you have the gift of encouragement, if you have the gift of faith, we praise God for you in this church. You are essential to the gospel ministry in this church, and you are a blessing to us. Please use your gift for the benefit of this church. We need you. If you are one who has the gift of faith this morning, I hope that you know it. I hope that you know what an encouragement that you are to us. And brothers and sisters, if you know someone who has this gift, it's likely that they don't know it. I'd encourage you to write them a note, shoot them a text message, write an email, send them a carrier pigeon. It doesn't have to be long. Just say, you know what Tim talked about this morning, about being an example of strength in the faith? I see that in you. And I wanted you to know that you are an encouragement to me. So point one was a crooked people. Point two is faith in the midst of a crooked people. And point three is a deliverer for a crooked people. A deliverer for a crooked people. So we have seen the state of Israel at this time. Forty years of occupancy by the Philistines. And they are not crying out to God. Forty years of enslavement by a foreign power. Forty years of not caring if they are separate from the world or not. Forty years conforming more and more to the world around them. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife. But what does the angel of the Lord say? In verses 3 and 5. 3 through 5. You shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So Israel wanted nothing to do with God, but in his kindness and in his pity and in his patience, God sends this deliverer to save Israel from their enslavement to the world. God does not wait for the people to wake up to save them, but he takes the initiative. God relentlessly pursues his people and delivers them even though they are not asking to be delivered. And so God mercifully sends a deliverer to Israel. He opens the barren womb again, and he proclaims that the son to Manoah and his wife will begin to deliver Israel from the, the 
from the Philistines. Notice also that he says that this deliverer will be a Nazarite. Now, what is a Nazarite? The Nazarite vow was a special vow that we see in number six, and it was made by a man or woman in the nation of Israel. And basically, it was used to separate themselves unto the Lord. Typically, it was a voluntary vow. It was not forced upon somebody, but it was chosen by an Israelite to separate themselves unto the Lord. It's also a, te- a temporary vow, typically. Usually, it was about 30 to 100 days is what this vow would be. So, a nation, or the nation of Israel was to be a set-apart people in the world, and a Nazarite was to be a set-apart person in the midst of a set-apart people. A person especially devoted to God in personal holiness. The Nazarite vow consisted of three major stipulations that we see in number six. First, he shall not consume strong drink. Second, he shall not touch any dead thing. And third, he shall not cut his hair. The Nazarite was to be a visual reminder to the people of Israel that they were all supposed to be set apart. By the abstinence from strong drink, the avoidance of dead carcasses, and especially the the long hair, Israel was to look at such a man and think, there goes a Nazarite. There is a man consecrated to the Lord. And ask themselves, am I also living a life that is set apart to the Lord? In the midst of the world around me, am I set apart? A Nazarite was a visual reminder to the people that they were all called to be set apart. So this deliverer was to be a Nazarite. But notice, this is not a normal Nazarite. The vow is spoken to him about him before he is born. So this vow is not temporary, or this vow is not voluntary, right? Also, notice it is not a temporary vow. Looking at Judges 13 and verse 5, it says, He shall be a Nazarite from the womb. And in verse 7, it says, to the day of his death. So this was a set-apart Nazarite, which was a set-apart people in the midst of a set-apart people. This Nazarite was going to be used to deliver God's people from the Philistines. And now, at the end of Judges 13, we see this good news come to fruition. The chapter ends with a glimmer of hope. Samson is born. He is a Nazarite from his birth. He has come to deliver Israel from their oppressors. The Spirit of God begins to stir in him in verse 25. The God of Israel will prove to be faithful to his obstinate people again. It's a hopeful chapter in a depressing book. And yet, while our text may end there, The story doesn't end there. Many people are aware of the story of Samson. It's a story of wickedness. It's a story of promiscuity. It's a story of deceit. It's a story of pride. Samson is by no means an example of righteousness to a a watching world. He marries a Philistinian woman, which is forbidden from God. He lays with a prostitute. He willfully breaks two of the stipulations of his vow, touching a dead carcass and drinking strong drink. And the third one is broken due to his foolishness. 
Now, yes, Samson still had faith. Yes, Samson was used to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Yes, Samson is mentioned in the famous Hebrews 11 passage, the Hall of Faith. Yes, God still used Samson despite his sinfulness. But Samson is by no means a paragon of virtue. So here we are. Israel wants nothing to do with salvation from the Philistines. And despite that, God still pursues his people. God does not allow his people to stay where they are. He does not allow them to continue to play in their mud pies, as C.S. Lewis would put it. God sends a deliverer, and then that deliverer turns out to be a scumbag as well. And yet, and yet, God still uses him. God still delivers his people. God has chosen a people for his own possession, and not one of his sheep will be lost. God delivers his people even though they have no desire to be delivered. Brothers and sisters, I hope that this story sounds familiar because this is the story of the entire Bible. It began with Adam when he hid from God and God sought him out and found him. It continued with Abraham when God sought him out of the land of Ur. We've seen it all throughout the book of Judges where God sent deliverer after deliverer after deliverer. We see it in the kings of Judah, where God raises up a few good kings to lead them out of their sin. We see it after the exile in Babylon, where God allows the people to return to the promised land and rebuild the temple. We see it in Hosea, where God likens himself to a faithful husband, relentlessly chasing after his promiscuous wife. And today, we are exactly the same way. We are all turning away from God. Everyone in this room would much rather go along with the grain of this world, watching the things that they want, saying the things that they say, going to the places that they go, climbing the ladders that they climb, rather than to cry out to God for a deliverer. Everyone in this room at one point in their life hated God. Everyone in this room has committed cosmic treason against God. And everyone in this room was once dead in their sins with no desire to turn to God. And everyone in this room would be destined for eternal torment in hell because of their sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. But God. But God. Praise God, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Brothers and sisters, in your fallenness, in your sin, God relentlessly pursued you. God relentlessly pursued his church. Romans 5, 3, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a, a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Praise God, he did not wait for Israel to clean up their act. Praise God, he did not wait for me to clean up my act. Praise God, he does not wait for you to clean up your act. God saves us despite our refusal of him. God drags us kicking and screaming out of the idolatry, out of the blasphemy, out of the darkness, and into his marvelous light. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and you led me to the cross. And there I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Jesus Christ is the perfect de deliverer. This is not Samson come to save the Philistines. This is not a broken deliverer come to save a broken people. This is God himself come to save us from sin and death itself. And just like Israel did nothing to earn their deliverance from sin and death, there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation but to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to repent of our sins. If you are a Christian struggling to fight sin and to be separate from the world, look to the cross. Remind yourself of God's relentless love for you, that God never gave up in his pursuit of us, and let that motivate you to kill sin in your life. If you are Manoah, if you are weak in your faith this morning, if you're struggling to trust God, Keep your eyes on the cross, because there we see God's love displayed. When you wanted nothing to do with him, he loved you. Keep coming back to him. Keep coming back to him. Keep coming back to him. He will hold you fast to the last day. If you are Manoah's wife, if your faith is strong, albeit imperfect, keep your eyes on the cross. For that is the foundation of everything that we believe. That is what we need to keep coming back to and point others to the cross as well. And if you have no faith here this morning, if you are loving the things of the world, if your life looks little different from the world around you, or if you would blatantly admit that you want nothing to do with God, but you're here because somebody invited you, first off, I want you to know that we are so glad that you are here. And I'm here to tell you that there is a Savior who is relentlessly pursuing you. The very fact that you are here this morning is evidence that he is chasing you down. He is calling after you. He longs for you to be saved. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, and you need not die in your sins. Come to Jesus and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray now for my brothers and sisters here this morning. I pray 
that if anybody is convicted of sin, I pray that they would run to you, that they would trust that you paid for every sin in this world, that you bore the death that we deserved, and that we are seen as spotless and perfect and blameless before you because of what you did on the cross. I pray that you would encourage us this morning to continue to come back to the gospel of Christ because that is the only thing that we can find our hope in. I pray that you would be glorified in all of our lives. I pray that you would help us to be a set-apart people and to bring fame and honor to your name and not our own. And we lift all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.